Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Oxford Township, Michigan. It's been in the headlines over the past week for a school shooting that killed four students and injured six more and a teacher. Our prayers are with them all. It's important to know that Oxford Township and its residents are not defined by the heinous act committed at Oxford High School. At its heart, it's a small community about 45 minutes north of Detroit where the residents are standing together as they support the families of the students who were killed, the injured victims, and everyone who has been impacted by what happened that day. Their motto is, together we are, hashtag, Oxford Strong. The Oxford Community Memorial and Victims Fund has been established to accept donations for the families and their community. Donations will go to families and victims first, then to a memorial. For more information, go to OxfordBank.com slash donations. On Tuesday, November 30th, a 15-year-old sophomore at Oxford High School in Oxford Township, Michigan, went into the bathroom at 12.51 p.m. with his backpack and came out a few minutes later carrying a gun. As he slowly walked down the hallway, he began shooting at his fellow classmates and teachers. It's been reported that more than 100 911 calls immediately flooded the sheriff's department. Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard said deputies rushed to the school and toward the shots, encountering the suspect in a hallway. Quote, As they were coming down the hall, they saw him. He put his hands up. They took the gun and took Ethan Crumbly into custody. End quote. The question on everybody's minds is how did this happen? What was the tipping point for this to happen? We don't know. We're going to have to be patient and time will tell what the psychological profile was regarding this young man. True, but we also can talk about what put the gun in the shooter's hands. Yes. The day after Thanksgiving on November 26th, Ethan Crumbly's father, James, purchased a 9mm Sig Sauer for Ethan from a store in Oxford. Ethan was with his father when he purchased the gun, and that same day Ethan posted on social media a post with the picture that said, quote, just got my new beauty today next to an emoji with heart eyes. Any questions, I will answer, end quote. On Saturday, November 27th, Ethan's mom, Jennifer, posted a message on her social media account that said, quote, Mom and Sunday testing out his new Christmas present with a picture of the new gun. On Monday morning, November 29th, a teacher saw Ethan Crumbly 
searching for information about ammunition on his cell phone during class, leading to a meeting with Ethan. The school reached out to Jennifer, and a voicemail was left about what the school termed an inappropriate internet search. The school followed up via email, but didn't receive a response to either communication with the parent. And it's my understanding that in the email, they actually detailed the fact that it was a search for ammunition on his phone. Okay, I hadn't seen that. That's good to know. Yeah, it was my understanding that they knew the nature of the situation. According to the Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald, that same day, a couple hours after this message had been left, Jennifer texted Ethan and said, quote, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught, end quote. This is not exactly what we want to be teaching our 15-year-olds. For any reason. Right. On Tuesday morning, November 30th, a teacher found a note on Ethan's desk that featured what was termed very disturbing drawings. Super, yeah. Oh, so you know what what it was. Yeah, very, very disturbing, in fact. It was actually, the teacher had handed out a worksheet review, so all these kids had a one-page document on um, on their desk. And Ethan drew a picture on his. He drew a picture of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, and they said, the thoughts won't stop, help me. In another section, it had a picture of a bullet and the words, blood everywhere. And between the drawing of the gun and the bullet is a drawing of a person who appears to have been shot twice and is bleeding. Below that picture is a laughing emoji. Further down on the page, it says, my life is useless. And to the right of that, the world is dead. And this was something you found out from? This was, this was from a press conference. And I'll talk about the press conference in a minute. Apparently, this teacher was so disturbed by what she saw that she took a picture on her own cell phone of this drawing that he had created. Oxford Community School Superintendent Tim Thorne has been quoted as saying that when the teacher asked him about these drawings, Ethan told them that the drawing was part of a video game he was designing and that he wanted a career as a video game designer. After they had seen this drawing and the teacher had contacted the school counselors, Jennifer and James Crumbly, Ethan's parents, were immediately summoned to the school for a meeting. A school counselor had been able to get the note from Ethan to show the parents but by then its contents had been altered. The doodle of the gun that Kathy spoke about and the shooting victim were scratched out, as well as the words that he had written on the page. I think the only sentence left that was not scratched out was, the thoughts won't stop. Ooh. Yeah. So help me, blood everywhere, the world is dead, my life is useless. That was all scratched out. But at the press conference, the prosecutor did not mention that the phrase, the thoughts won't stop, was, was still scratched there. out. Exactly. She didn't say it was scratched out. So. Okay. Now, this had happened at about approximately 10 a.m. on Tuesday, November 30th. Are you talking about the meeting with the parents? The meeting with the parents. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So the meeting with the parents, as we understand it, was the counselor, the child, and both parents. Yes. And I don't know what kind of counselor it was. Do you? I don't. I mean, honestly, my assumption is that it could either be a psychologist or it could even be a counselor, because remember, this is a high school, 
It could be the one that like helps you put applications into colleges. Right. Or it could be a counselor in quotes who is really the uh, dean of discipline. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what kind of counselor it was. It, nothing's been referred to to describe the counselor as anything other than just, quote, a counselor. counselor. During James and Jennifer's meeting with school officials, it's been reported that they were shown the drawing and told what had been scratched out. Right. I have not read or heard anything to suggest that the parents saw the original photo that was on the teacher's uh, cell phone. And that actually makes sense because honestly, if, if you had seen that with one of your children, wouldn't you take your child immediately out of school to get him help, him or her help? Or something. Or something. I, or something. Right. Um, but what had happened is, is the school wanted the parents to take Ethan out of school and not leave him there for the day. But the parents pushed back because they both were at work and didn't want him going home to an empty house. Which I could see that also. I mean, if, if you're if you, if the only words you see on there are, you know, the the thoughts it? won't stop. Yeah, the thoughts won't stop. And you're you're told that your son had written these horribly cryptic Scary. and violent things. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want him to be alone. And even self-harming. I mean, yeah, at this point, right. who he, knows if they were even thinking bigger picture, but rather is he trying to harm himself? Oh, 100%. I absolutely would have thought, oh boy, my son's thinking of suicide. That's right. exactly what would have leapt into my mind. And so, of course, if that's the case, the parents don't want him home by himself. Right. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. The school did tell them, though, that they were required to get Ethan into counseling within 48 hours or Child Protective Services would take him. Wow. Which I think is a great thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it sounds a little scary, but... No, it's necessary. But here's where the parents failed. Remember, they had bought him a gun four days prior. <sighs> they did not ask him if he had the Sig Sauer with him. They did not ask him where it was. And they didn't look into his backpack for the gun, which, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, it turned out... That's exactly where it was. Mm -hmm. As I'd mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the shooting took place at 1251 p.m. That was when Ethan had gone into the bathroom with his backpack and came out holding the Sig Sauer. It's a shame that neither of these parents left the meeting and went to check on the whereabouts of the gun, because had they done so, they probably could have prevented this horrid tragedy. Because fewer than three hours after this meeting four children were dead. Killed were 16-year-old Tate Meyer, who was being hailed as a hero for physically trying to stop Ethan Crumbly. That's awesome. There actually, there's a petition online to change the name of their football stadium to his name. He was a varsity football player as a sophomore and was considered to be kind of all around the, one of the best football players. And he actually went after the kid. He went after the kid. Wow. 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, and 17-year-old Justin Schilling. And I have to hand it to the prosecutor in this case because at the first press conference she gave, she went through each of the kids and just talked a little bit about them and what they did. It was, oh, that's it was, amazing. Yeah, no, it's what needs to be done. It does, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I read about Justin Schilling, so he actually didn't die at the school as the other three did. He died in the hospital the next day on Wednesday, December 1st. He was an organ donor. And so, wow. yeah, there that's was awesome. There, there was a video I saw from a news station that showed a huge group of residents 
kids, parents, everyone outside of the hospital and watched as they took Justin down the hallway to surgery to remove his organs. And outside with this large group of people, you could have heard a pin drop. But they were there just sending all of their energy and support. And just Justin. so respectful. Absolutely. And they were just there so that the family knew they were there for them. That is awesome. It That's really was. so cool. Remember, Ethan Crumbly stepped out of the bathroom at 12.51 p.m. At 1.22 p.m., so just over 30 minutes later, his mom texted him, quote, don't do it. But as we know, the shooting had already taken place. And she obviously saw it publicized on television. Well, I don't know if she did at that point, but her husband certainly did, because at 1.37, which was 15 minutes after Jennifer had sent this, Per District Attorney Karen McDonald, as reports started coming out about a shooting at Oxford High School, James immediately went home to check for the gun. When he didn't find it, he called 911 to report the gun missing and said he thought his son was likely the shooter. But by this time, his son had already been taken into custody. It was too late. It was too late. But like you said, Kathy, if he had done that now at that point four hours prior, he would have stopped this whole thing. On Wednesday morning, December 1st, Ethan was charged as an adult with one count of terrorism, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to commit murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. So on December 1st, after Ethan's arraignment, District Attorney Karen McDonald held a press conference. It was a lengthy press conference, I'm guessing probably about 20 minutes or so. And she took a lot of questions. However, she kept reminding people she had an ethical duty not to disclose facts that will jeopardize the prosecution of the case or threaten a fair trial. So there were many times that she could not comment on what people were asking her to comment upon. Ms. McDonald talked about why they were charging Ethan as an adult. And she basically said there are certain crimes that are so serious that the person can be charged as an adult. So, for example... Murder one, serious crime. And she talked about in this situation how there was planning to it. She pointed out that it was premeditated. And she said, there are certain times where it is necessary to achieve justice and protect the public. So you do not want somebody who is a minor, even if they're convicted of a crime, to get out earlier than they otherwise should, given the nature of the premeditation and the seriousness of their offense. Ms. McDonald talked about gathering facts, gathering evidence. She said the process will take time and the prosecution would leave no stone unturned. They were going to find out how and why this happened. Ms. McDonald also said it's possible there could be additional charges when the evidence is reviewed and complete. We cannot disclose details and evidence that can compromise our case at this point. And then later on, she said... We are considering charges against both parents, and we will be making a decision swiftly. At the press conference, Ms. McDonald expressed a great deal of frustration about irresponsible gun ownership. She talked about preventing further tragedies and addressing responsible gun ownership, including the security of the guns. And she said those who do not should be held accountable. Well, and Kath, it was actually revealed that the father kept the gun in an unlocked drawer in the parents' bedroom. 
And later the defense said, no, that's not true. So we'll see what happens. You know, we'll see. I mean, the defense said, maybe, no, 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 no. They're just picking and choosing all the good facts. That's maybe not it was how a, it is. Maybe it was an unlocked drawer in his bedroom. I mean, I don't know what it is. Time will tell. Yeah. So this is December 1st, Wednesday, and the prosecutor said, shortly we will be announcing whether or not there will be further charges. Those questions will be answered at that time, because a lot of people had a bunch of questions about that. So it says, however, we know that owning a gun means securing it properly and locking it and keeping the ammunition separate and not allowing access to other individuals, particularly minors. And we have to hold those individuals accountable who don't do that. So this was a really big, hey, we're coming after you parents. Right. We're coming after you. That's what I heard. After the press conference on December 1st, we find out in subsequent newspaper articles that Jennifer and James have hired attorneys. Now, we find out later that these attorneys called the prosecutor's office on the 2nd, which was Thursday, exactly Thursday, and said, hey, look, you know, if you're going to charge him, just give me a call. We'll uh, we'll We'll get them there. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bring them over willingly. This doesn't have to be a big dog and pony show. Now, I'm definitely filling in the blanks as to what I think they said. Right, exactly. I (laughs) think you're paraphrasing. Exactly. But we do know that the attorneys told the prosecutor's office that they would bring James and Jennifer to the police station, that they would voluntarily present their clients rather than having them publicly arrested. Good call. Yeah, exactly. That's what you want to do as a defense attorney. And you don't need to feed the media anymore right now either. Correct. So what happens December 3rd, the next day, Friday, Friday, the prosecutor, Karen McDonald, the district attorney, had another press conference. This press conference was hot off the heels of a swear to. Now, I had to look up what a swear to was. And she keeps saying it incorrectly, just for the record. I know. I keep calling it a swear at. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what she does. Which is what I do. (laughs) Anyway, so apparently in Michigan and probably many other states, when you file a criminal complaint and you want an arrest warrant to be issued, you can you, you have a swear to where, where the detective actually comes in and testifies under oath. And as swears to something? Correct. And testifies under oath as to all the facts leading to probable cause for an arrest. Now, I also read that you can file a criminal complaint and give all of the facts inside a verified criminal complaint so you don't need live testimony and the judge could just read the complaint and issue an arrest warrant. I don't know which happened in this case Um, because the district attorney referenced a swear to. I am assuming a detective had to give live testimony, but I don't know for sure. So anyway, after whatever testimony is given by the detective, the judge signs an arrest warrant. I am ballparking all of this was around between 11 and noon, 11 a.m. and noon. Once the detective or once these facts are released to the court, they are public facts. They are technically public facts, right? If somebody knew to look Correct. for it. Correct. Correct. Exactly. They are technically public facts. So the district attorney can speak about these. So at her December 3rd press conference, 
She did a very detailed blow by blow of why they had just issued an arrest warrant for Jennifer and James Crumbly. Now, do we know how long this was after the detective swore to the facts? I literally believe it was within like five minutes. My impression, it was like almost simultaneous. Like that's my impression. So So she was just jumping on it to be like, like the girl in the know, the one to break the news, the... She was big britches. britches. (laughs) (laughs) So at this December 3rd press conference, the prosecutor again did a blow by blow justifying why they had issued an arrest warrant for the parents. Now, much of what was discussed at that press conference was already gone over by Kathy and I, mostly by Kathy, talking about the text messages and the timing of everything. So at the December 3rd press conference, she reiterated her desire to have uh, responsible gun ownership and essentially said that she was, you know, sending a message that if any facts called for it, these facts called for it. And one of the things that she was particularly upset about, I shouldn't even say upset, that's not the right word. Um, one of the one of the aspects that she most hammered was the fact that they knew their son had a gun or had access to a gun. Correct. And yeah, exactly. They didn't know he had it on him then. But why weren't they checking his backpack? Why weren't you know, why? Why was this not discussed or revealed in any way, shape or form? The prosecutor insisted it was impossible not to conclude their son was going to hurt someone that morning when they saw the drawing he had made. Now, at this December 3rd press conference, somebody asked, are the parents in custody? And the district attorney responded, I'm not going to make a comment on that. Because (laughs) nobody knows about it till right now with my press conference. Right. (laughs) On December 3rd at 4 o'clock, Roughly four and a half hours after the press conference that Ms. McDonald had given, she was supposed to be arraigning the Crumblies in court, essentially charging them with these felonies. Had she said at the press conference what she was charging them with? Yes, she was charging each of them with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. So again, there was expected to be a media circus at four o'clock that day. But... Guess what? The Crumblies never appeared. Oh, what's the word? They oh god. <laughs> you gotta say it. Come on. They dipped. <laughs> they dipped. <laughs> and we talked about if somebody evaded them twice, was it a double dip? Oh, but if there are two of them, is it a double dip? <laughs> That's a good question. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. After the shooting on Tuesday, November 30th, the Crumblies did not feel safe staying in their home, so they had actually moved to a motel in Rochester Hills, which was about 20 minutes south of Oxford Township. So that's where they had been staying since Tuesday. And again, this is Friday when they were supposed to have been arraigned. 
And I, I remember you telling me that you had seen a video of neighbors like getting their Amazon boxes and taking them in for them and right. that kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, I can't imagine how they felt. Of course they left town. Right. They were scared. Yeah. And their attorneys and the police knew that they were at this motel. So it wasn't that they were hiding at this point. Everybody was aware of it. So as Kathy said, the arraignment was supposed to have been at four o'clock. Well, around two o'clock on Friday afternoon, Jennifer and James Crumbly went to the bank and withdrew $4,000. So when they did not appear at the hearing at four o'clock, they were considered fugitives. And the Oakland County Sheriff's Office released images of both Jennifer and James, as well as the vehicle that they may have been driving, a black 2021 Kia. The undersheriff, Michael McCabe, said that he was confident the couple will be found. It's just a matter of when. Now, do you know why he was so confident they'd be found? I have a feeling you're going to tell me. I am. (laughs) Okay, if anybody listened to the Alexis Sharkey episode, and if you haven't, I would recommend you do so. But they brought in the U.S. Marshals. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) The baddest of the bad. They will find you. If they're looking for you, just stop. They're going to find you. Just give yourself up. Don't fight it. Just prone yourself out on the sidewalk and wait. Exactly. And and you'll wait like 20 seconds. They'll be right there because they've been watching you. So that's what happened. With the Crumblies on the lam, the district attorney, Karen McDonald, appeared on Anderson Cooper. So at this point, everybody knows the Crumblies are missing. And Anderson Cooper says, why not arrest them first and then hold a press conference? That's a good question. (laughs) Yeah. one, One that she was... She, she's actually a very poised prosecutor, but you could tell she was like, oh, I don't want to talk about this part. She wanted the softball question. <laughs> exactly. But what she said was that she had been confident that the law enforcement were surveilling the Crumblies because a day and a half prior to her press conference, you know, she had asked, do we have eyes on those two? Somebody in her office made some phone calls and said, yes, the police are watching them. So she was under the impression that there was active surveillance apparently at all times. And of course, she was probably lulled because she also noted with Anderson Cooper that there was representations that they would be turning themselves in. So defense attorneys put out a statement saying, on Thursday night, we contacted the Oakland County prosecutor to discuss this matter and to advise her that James and Jennifer Crumbly would be turning themselves in to be arraigned. Instead of communicating with us, The prosecutor held a press conference to announce charges. They are not fleeing from law enforcement despite recent comments in media reports. So basically the defense attorneys were saying, hey, they were afraid. They were were trying to keep themselves safe. Right. Well, because the district attorney was seen as grandstanding and trying to just, you know, make a case, but wasn't actually going by the book. Right. Also, the Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard said... I've been sheriff for 21 years, and I've never had anyone have a press conference announcing charges before we had the opportunity to have someone in custody. I I think that's probably a very fair statement. I think it's reasonable. Yeah. And then he says, we're working on a relationship. The prosecutor is new, and we're doing our best to make sure these kinds of things and communications happen in a more fluid way. That's the best I can tell you. Yeah, but that's a kind of a stinging rebuke, too. I mean, I know that he was trying to be nice. He was saying all the right words, but that was also a little uh, sarcastic. Well, I don't know if it was sarcastic. I think he was just putting lipstick on a pig. You know what I mean? Better. Yeah. And so I am sure, and and I think part of it is this prosecutor is very passionate, this district attorney, McDonald. You could tell she's very passionate. 
She's part of the community. She's a parent. She's appalled at what happened because she sees it as something that could have been stopped. And so I think that as soon as the facts were made public by the detective at the swear to, she immediately set a press conference and released everything that she couldn't release in her initial press conference. Right. But again, the smart thing would have been to work with the sheriff's office to make sure they were in custody or at least actually had eyes on them yeah. before they did any of that. A little text saying, hey, it's going down, bro. Yeah, exactly. You, re- you ready? Yeah. <laughs> As Kathy indicated previously, the marshals and now the FBI and the county's fugitive apprehension team are looking for the crumblies. They get a tip from somebody who also accompanies video with a tip of a woman standing next to a car in a commercial district in Detroit. So Detroit's about 45 miles south of Oxford Township. But what's interesting about Detroit, even though it's south of Oxford, parts of Detroit, like the outskirts of Detroit, are only about a mile from the Canadian border. It's right next to the Canadian province of Ontario. Oh, interesting. So the task force comes to this location and finds the Crumblies inside. They arrest them. They then look at the video and they see that somebody had let them in. It was sort of like a warehouse It reminded me because somebody had actually taken their cell phone and videotaped their arrest. Yeah, through sort of like these slats. Like blinds or something? Well, it it, it wasn't blinds. It it reminded me of like like a gate that would come down. Like an iron gate? Yeah, like an iron gate. Or like the metal gate that sometimes come down? Yeah, so somebody somebody videotaped them being, or somebody's cell phone recorded them um, being arrested. It it was a... A non-event, I'm going to call it. It wasn't dramatic. It was just, you know, they were hooked up and let out. But anyway, after after being arrested, the task force reviewed the video of the location, and they found out that somebody let them in. They didn't let themselves in. Somebody let them in to a locked building. And so now the issue is, okay, were they trying to harbor fugitives? Did they know these people were wanted by the police, and were they helping them hide? Right. So that investigation is being undertaken now and uh as as i have an update you do i do have an update fancy girl i am (laughs) according to the daily beast after jennifer and james crumbly were found by fugitive teams early saturday morning as kathy just said hiding out in a commercial property in east detroit authorities then turned their attention to see who may have helped them try to escape these charges Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard said Saturday afternoon that his office was considering charging an unnamed person with aiding and abetting or obstruction of justice for assisting them as police were issuing nationwide alerts and the U.S. Marshals were getting involved. Sheriff Bouchard was quoted as saying, We have enough early indication that clearly somebody helped them into that location and made it available to them. And this was done after it was publicly announced that there were warrants out for their arrest. A closer look by the Daily Beast of footage from the arrests of Crumbly show the couple exiting a room with signage for a Polish-born, Detroit-based artist who had connections to Oxford, Michigan. According to a news article in the Oxford Leader last month, this man had finished a mural at Red Knapp's American Grill a bar that was just around the corner from the Crumbly's house in Oxford. A picture accompanying this story indicated the photo was taken by a, quote, 
Jen Crumbly. Jen spelled J-E-H-N. This was a nickname that Jennifer Crumbly had been known to go by both professionally and socially. Interestingly, the article appeared to have been updated to remove the caption. Wait, which caption did they remove? About who had uh, taken the photo. Oh, that's interesting. I know. The Daily Beast used a Wayback Machine archive, and it still had the original information on it. Mm. So that's how they were able to tell that who it was. So reached by phone that Saturday morning, the artist said he had just been made aware of the investigation and was in conversations with people, but he would not specify whether those were law enforcement officers or lawyers, and then he declined to comment further. A Red Knapp employee, remember this is the grill where the picture was taken of the mural that had just been painted, said that she couldn't provide more details of the photograph. And the writer of the Oxford Leader article and the newspaper's publisher did not respond to inquiries as to why the caption had been removed. At an early morning press conference on Saturday morning, December 4th, following the Crumbly's arrest by fugitive teams, Detroit Police Chief James White indicated that the department was aware of an individual helping the Crumbly's find refuge. Quote, we are working on an angle on one other person who was assisting them, indicating that charges would be forthcoming. Asked on Saturday afternoon for comment on the artist's possible involvement, Rudy Harper, who was the second deputy chief of the Detroit police, said, quote, we have not publicly identified the third person to my knowledge. At this time, our investigation continues, end quote. Now, I will say that a name has been included in some of these articles, but again, we are not using that name. We're kind of giving a description of the person simply because if they aren't involved, we are not going to be the ones to divulge that information. Right. So on December 4th, Saturday morning, the Crumbleys were arraigned from the jailhouse on Zoom. So at the arraignment, it was pretty interesting because two women, Muriel Lehman and Shannon Smith, who both work for the same defense firm, are representing jointly... Jennifer and James Crumbly. Why is that weird? The reason it's interesting is because, especially in a criminal prosecution, every client has the right of undivided loyalty of their own counsel. Even though I am married and I cannot be compelled to testify against my spouse, I, separate from my spouse, get to have an attorney with my interests 100% at heart. So that's even if it screws over your husband. Correct. And that's the duty of undivided loyalty. <laughs> well, no, it makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. And it, so they waived that right? Well, according to... So, so what you do when you have a potential conflict of interest, you explain the conflict of interest and how it might occur, and then what's going to happen if it does occur. You may have to step out of a case entirely, not being able to represent anyone if you came in representing two people at once and an actual conflict of interest arises. For example, let's pretend that Jennifer didn't want to buy the gun. Let's pretend she was like, hey, honey, this is not a good idea. Our son is immature, blah, 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 blah. And James was like, no, no, this is a great idea. It'll make a man out of him. Yeah, we're going on Black Friday sale and we are getting a gun. Uh, anyway, so let's say the, the dad then says, I'll be responsible for Maintaining happens. or maintaining the safety of the gun, maintaining, uh, you know, a combination lock or whatever it is. 
So let's see. Let's say he fell down in his responsibilities without her being aware of it. Then, like the, the the greater burden falls on him, you know. So anyway, so the point is, there could be a situation where one parent is more potentially culpable in negligence than the other parent. Okay, got it. So the reason this arraignment was interesting is because the judge indicated that. Under Michigan law, if there was a firm representing both criminal defendants, I'm assuming, you know, she primarily does criminal cases, that you have to state on the record as to why you don't believe there's a conflict of interest. I believe it was Muriel Lehman who explained to the court that she and Shannon Smith, the attorneys, did not believe there was a conflict of interest that prevented them from ethically representing both parties at the same time. What she said was that the circumstances and facts presented by the media had been cherry-picked. Oh, of course it was. Of course they were. So anyway, so she said after having in-depth conversations about the facts of the case, that they were confident there was no conflict of interest and it wouldn't be an ethical problem. And so I thought that was very, very, very interesting. And so essentially the husband and wife are coming in, I'm going to call them like as a team on the same footing. So technically they have their own attorneys representing them, but they're working. Well, no, because Marielle is representing Jennifer and the other one said she was representing James when asked by the judge, but they're with the same firm and they're working together. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly my impression of what's happening based on, you know, hearing everything. And then, of course, the judge asked Jennifer and James, do you see any reason, you know, why you can't be represented by attorneys in the same firm? You know, that kind of thing. And of course, and they said, said no. Yeah, exactly. One of the reasons this case is interesting is because in most criminal situations, when children are involved, when minors are involved, parents are not charged with crimes. Here, the Crumbleys are being charged with involuntary manslaughter, which has often been called criminally negligent homicide. And so it's a very rare circumstance where parents are actually charged for the crimes of their children. In Michigan, there are two types of manslaughter. There's voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. The Crumbleys were charged with involuntary manslaughter, and the difference between the two is intent. So voluntary manslaughter requires that the defendant cause the death of the victim and that the defendant either intended to kill the victim or intended to do great bodily harm or created a situation where the risk of bodily harm or death was very high. Would this be something like a DUI driver could get hit with voluntary manslaughter because drinking and driving, getting behind the wheel when you're impaired, you could argue that you knew something could happen that would cause someone's death. Yes. Okay. Yes. Like what, what you're doing is so dangerous or reckless or whatever. And involuntary manslaughter basically occurs where an individual is responsible for the death of another person without intent. So it's, it's an unintentional homicide. So it could be like carelessness. Extreme carelessness. Extreme carelessness. Yes, exactly. And so that, that's why a lot of people call it criminally negligent homicide. And so in this situation, the prosecutor has some, some good ammunition. And basically they're saying, you should have known better. Right. You gave your, you allowed your child to have access to a gun. You purchased the gun for your child. And then, well, I mean, I'm sure they're going to say it was for them. It wasn't for the child. But, but anyway, 
the kid had a gun, had access to a gun, and you saw this very scary thing that he had drawn that day in school. I think how the gun was maintained is going to be huge because I strongly suspect that the defense is going to present evidence that this kid was clinically depressed or perhaps at risk of suicide or something, and that's why they didn't want to pull him out of school that day. And we have to remember, the school counselor was in on this meeting, even though we don't know who the counselor is. Or what their qualifications were. Right. They were in on the meeting, and, you know, it seems to me, ultimately, the decision to have him stay in school would fall on their shoulders. Right. I agree with that. And the other thing, too, is, you know, we talk about they should have said, based on what we had heard, that it was in an unlocked drawer, we have said the parents should have looked in the backpack. However, what if it wasn't a locked box? What if they assumed he didn't have the combination to it or what have you? Then they wouldn't have thought they needed to. Right. And it wasn't until they heard about the shooting that the dad said, oh, crap, maybe he got into it and I just wasn't aware of it. Right. So it will be interesting to see what happens. The judge ordered a $500,000 cash bail for each of them. In the meantime, my heart breaks for the families of these kids and, and the teacher. I can't imagine. I can't possibly imagine what these kids went through. When they talked about what had happened when the kids all heard shooting, it's such a reflection on society these days that I feel like these kids do active shooter drills like we used to do earthquake drills. That's what you talked about. You said that these kids, like some of them reacted as though they knew what they were supposed to do. Right. And so I'm wondering if that's what they do now for kids. Like they knew that they needed to barricade the doors. They knew that they needed to get down. They also knew they needed to find another way out you know, if it came to that. And that's where a lot of this tragedy is. No kid should have to worry about getting hurt in school. I know that's true. But I agree. Prayers are with the the community, but especially with the families of those who were killed and those who were injured, because some of them are still in the hospital. Exactly. As updates become available, we will share them with you on social media. If you liked us, but only if you liked us, (laughs) please leave a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on our socials at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.